in closing, the point that Boinarin's making, the point that we get from Leviticus, if reading it in the vein of who shall ascend the mountain, is the same point that Willard is pointing us to in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to become the kinds of people who naturally produce moral purity, not by rejecting ritual purity, but by using it as a way of instructing us, informing us into the kinds of people who naturally do the things that God calls us to. That is what it means. So I wanted to read a passage here. Could you pull it up for me, Daniel? Uh, Matthew chapter five, explaining, giving another example of how Jesus does this. In the passage, in the passage we read last week. This is Matthew five, starting 20, 21. He says, ritual, moral purity. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, ritual purity. And then remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against them, but that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift, forego the ritual purity in the moment and strive for the relational and and moral purity. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accusers while you're going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and then put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So even in this passage we read last week which is part of his explanations in the ser- in the beginning of the sermon on the mount is forego the ritual purity if you have a moral problem in your relationships right this is what my friend did the other night we were hanging out she could sense that she had caused this rift because of her reaction to things that were said in the conversation and so when she offers to go buy me a drink we leave Right when we get to the bar, she says, hey, I'm going to apologize to you. She left the, the gathering to put us aside and say, I need to make this right. And then we went back and we had a great time. And I was very humbled by her doing that, truly. So she, even though she wouldn't proclaim herself to be a Christian, is doing what Jesus has said here. Now, she wasn't at church, but the point can still be made that she knew that something was wrong, so she went to reconcile it with me. And so we reconciled, and we had a great time. And so this is, again, Jesus putting moral purity literally over ritual purity. Leave your gift. Don't go to the sacrifice because there's something wrong with your brother. Reconcile that first and then come back. After you're morally good, come do the ritual. Because that's what it signifies anyway. It's just part of Jesus' whole point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
Yeah. Go on. No, that's, that's great. That's a great example. And so now we're going to get into a bit more of the technical ways in which this works out and what is ritually pure and how even Leviticus shows us that Jesus' point stands. Jesus' point that the, point, the purpose of ritual purity is to produce in us moral purity. So we're going to be using Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, um, which has been one of the mainstays. This is a really helpful chart. It's on page 155 in the book. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read a paragraph with this chart up, and then I'll walk us through how this chart works. So um, paragraph on the page before, which is in block quotes um, from a man or, well, I don't actually know, a scholar named Milgram, uh, last name Milgram, um, I forgot to check the, the full citation. Um, it starts by saying, everything that is not holy is common. You can see that in the chart. Common things divide into two groups, the clean and the unclean. The clean things become holy when they are sanctified. But unclean objects cannot be sanctified. Clean things can be made unclean if they are polluted. Finally, holy items may be defiled and can become common, even polluted, and therefore unclean. Sanctification can elevate the clean into the holy, while pollution degrades the clean into the unclean. The unclean and the holy are two states which must never come into contact with each other. Mm. According to Leviticus, then, the sacrificial blood is necessary to cleanse and to sanctify. So Jesus does two things, maybe, if we impose that upon the, the crucifixion. Sacrifice can undo the effects of sin and human infirmity. Sin and disease lead to profanation, to uh, the profaning of things, of the holy and the pollution of the unclean. So I'll read that again. Sin and disease, right? So sin in the moral sense and disease, right? Lepra, um, death itself, and they would associate that with any, you know, if you contact a dead body and it's been decomposing, there's bacteria and things. So Sin and disease lead to the profanation of, whole, of the holy and the pollution of the clean. Sacrifice can reverse this process. So you can see how that works out in this, in this is chart. Just to make one more dot of connection, this is why when Jesus cleanses anyone who's leprous, he says, show yourselves before the priests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can be declared clean. Yep. So, um, so again, he's not doing away with this. Yeah, no, he's not doing away with this at all. He is upholding it and he's showing to a deeper degree the ways that this works out and should work out in our lives. And that is crucially, crucially important. Um, so one of the things that I think is super important for us to emphasize. And I'm going to leave this up while, um, while reading this, this next passage on, on 160. And I've mentioned it before, um, is that 
being polluted and being profaned is not necessarily sinful. If you are ritually unclean, right, in this bottom category here in this chart, it does not mean you're sinful inherently. Sin, excuse me, especially as this line of thought develops, does make you unclean. And that's kind of where these, these two spheres of thought overlap, right? But it's, it's not that you, it's not um, being, what am I trying to say? Being un, unholy or unclean in this sense isn't necessarily sinful. So on page 160, <clears throat> Morales, in talking about um, the atonement and cleanliness, he says that, um, and he's using a specific um, example from Leviticus that I don't have time to explain, but he says that this demonstrates that the, set, the status of unclean is not one that necessarily calls for the forgiveness of sins. If you're ritually unclean, it's not that you need your sins forgiven. That's not what this is about. And remember, one of the things that we've talked about previously is that Gentiles were considered unclean. In the, in the Mark passage, Jesus, I think, re even refers to them as unclean. So what does Jesus' sacrifice do for Gentiles? It doesn't make them holy. It makes them clean. That way they can approach God's presence, or they can, they can try, they can work to become holy and thus approach God's presence. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. And, and that, that is crucial. But anyway, so the, um, this status of unclean is not one that necessarily calls for the forgiveness of sins. A woman's period flow of blood then is not considered a moral failure, like I mentioned earlier, or a transgression of God's law requiring forgiveness. On the other hand, there is what a scholar named Sprinkle has adequately described as a strong analogy between unclean and sin. There's, so there's an analogy that works, like I mentioned in the prophets. These two things overlap significantly, but they're not the same thing. He goes on to explain that the Day of Atonement cleanses from both sin and uncleanness, and the Pentateuch regularly describes immoral acts and iniquities like murder, adultery, and idolatry as unclean. But that doesn't mean that to be unclean is sinful. <clears throat> and I wanted to make that explicit um, and cite my sources, because I think that th this is a crucially important thing to understand if we're going to understand what Leviticus is actually about. Um, <clears throat> One more thing, he says, to summarize, while Leviticus 11 through 15, uh, while in Leviticus 11 through 15, uncleanness is not flatly or immediately equated with particular sinful acts. It is nevertheless treated as being generally or ultimately the result of sin. So uncleanness is the result of sin, but it's not sin in itself. Uncleanness represents the pollution of sin. Mm. Contact with a carcass results in uncleanness. Contacting a carcass is necessary, right? You need to clean up the dead. You need to dispose of them properly. You need to care and mourn for them properly. You need to do it. 
So it's not sinful to touch dead things. It does make you unclean. Why? Therefore, not because such contact itself is a sin, but because death and mortality are the result of sin. Right? Coming into Romans contact five, with... Romans 5, baby. Yep. And this is why Paul is just so good and we miss him all the time. This is why sin and uncleanness are related, but they're not the same thing. Uncleanness results from sin, just like death results from sin. But, but it's, it's not the same thing. It is so, so much not the same thing. So um, any comments on that before we continue? No, just, well, shortly, just what I said, right? This is Romans 5. Yeah. Sin and death, they are connected inextricably, right? What does God say to Adam and Eve? Well, they can't be in this state and live forever. Also, I'm an annihilationist. Uh, um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the fact that those things would be connected, the things that make you unclean are also related to death and sickness and consequences of sin would make sense. So... Yep. So I have one more chart to show us today. This is from page 164 in the text. Um, and this is how the cosmos and the cultic cosmos, which is something that we referred to in our typology talks, um, relate to each other in regards to this cleanness thing, right? So unclean and Gentiles, that's what I mentioned earlier, right? And that's why I will think it's crucially important that Jesus' blood cleanses the Gentiles and brings them into the fold, right? And that's the concept we don't talk about. If you want some more on that, go back to our episode on Mark 11 yeah. and Jesus uh, purifying the temple. Yeah, clen cleansing the temple. Um, so unclean and Gentiles, clean and Israel, holy and priests. And then you have the high priest who is allowed to be further sanctified and enter into the holy of holies, right? And then how this works out in the cultic cosmos is you have uncleanness and the wilderness, right? You send the sins on the go to Azazel out into the wilderness. We've talked about that before. The clean and the camp. You have to be clean in order to be in the camp, which is why, again, we have this because of our um, gospel of inclusion that's so powerful in our culture right now, we see all of the, the cultic laws that say, okay, after you've done this, you have to be excluded. You, got, you have to go outside the boundary of the camp for so long and do these things and that, or even the ways in which leprosy was handled in Jesus' day. We see those things as so, so bad because they break our gospel of inclusion. Right. Jesus didn't say the lepers can come in to the temple. Jesus cleansed the lepers and then sent them to the temple. And that is something that we need to seriously think about. It's not that all get included as they are. It's that all have the opportunity to be cleansed and brought into the center.
that's a part of Jesus' reign. That is a very important consequence of the gospel, and we routinely forget it. So the camp is clean, and that's why those who are in this state of uncleanness have to go outside the camp. But once they are restored back into their cleanliness, they are brought back into the camp. And then through the sacrifice of animals, right? And so the unclean animals are sent out and kept out. The clean animals are brought into the camp and the sacrificial animals allow us to enter into the tabernacle, right? And that, that is super important. Um, I was going to read the paragraph directly below this, but I think I just explained it well enough and, and easily enough that that point comes across pretty well. Luke, do you have anything to add there? No, that was great. That was great. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so for the, um, for the sake of time, oh, and one, one more thing to note, um, and I think I will read a, a paragraph on this. Um, is that, so this is on the, the following page, on page 66. Um, Morales says, being clean may have been understood in terms of admittance into Eden, right? And so this is, again, this theme that we've been tracking, this typology of the cult mapping onto Eden, right? This cultic ritual practice mapping onto the Garden of Eden story while being banished from Israel's camp would have been a sort of reenactment of the fall when Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden. As Adam and Eve experienced a living death when they were expelled from Eden, so every man who was diagnosed as unclean suffered a similar fate. And so that's, that's how this thing gets mapped onto the biblical story as a whole. And that is also important to recognize, is that this isn't just about some arbitrary standard. And these stories aren't just meant to teach us to be moral people. They are meant to be lived out in a new and very direct kind of way. Israel lived out the story of Adam and Eve in their practices all the time. All the time. Um, so anything to say on that? Just you reference exactly what I said earlier. There's, they cannot be in this. That's part of what God does when he kicks them out of the garden. Mm -hmm. They're outside the camp. Yep. They're, they're, they're ritually and morally appear now. They have to go away. Yeah. And, and then God makes, God will then make provision mm -hmm. for him to be able to dwell with his people later in a different context and this is the stipulation yeah well and adam and eve are allowed to go to the door and make sacrifice right they go to the door of eden and make sacrifice and that is supposed to be a way in which they can still be close to god's presence without being in it and and that's important too so now we're going to see how this then, this whole idea maps onto some moral, some morality and moral formation. So um, in talking about the Sabbath ritual of the bread and the lampstand, um, and I'll explain that um, a little bit here. So every Sabbath, the bread of the covenant, I believe was replaced and the, the priests would eat, I think it was the older bread, 
um, and let 12 loaves of bread sit under the menorah lamp in the tabernacle. And the light of the lamp is supposed to directly shine upon the 12 loaves of bread. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, how many baskets of bread are left? Oof. Yeah. 12. Okay. I just thought I'd say that. Yeah. And how many tribes are there? 12. 12. These, these loaves of bread are representing um, right. the, the people of Israel. And um, at, at my church, we, we say the, uh, the Barucha, I think is what it's called. Um, or we, we sing it in a, a different version every time someone gets baptized. Um, and it's the, um, let me see, why can't I remember it now? It's, um, it's that part in numbers. It's the Aaronite blessing. May the Lord make his face shine upon you mm-hmm. and be gracious to mm-hmm. you and give you his favor. Mm-hmm. It's this, the Lord's light shining upon the people, right? God is symbolized as the menorah. The covenant symbolizes the light and the covenant is supposed to bestow God's likeness onto the people. So with that in the background, let me, let me read a section from, from the book. <clears throat> so this is a section talking about Leviticus 24, one through nine. Um, this is on uh, page 189 in the book. First, as the only offering designated as an eternal covenant, this is the only offering, this offering of the bread of the presence is what it's called in the tabernacle on the Sabbath is the only offering designated an eternal covenant. The bread of the presence uniquely symbolizes the relationship between Yahweh and his people. Rightly, he associates the 12 loaves with the 12 tribes of Israel, suggesting that even the division into two piles of six supports this understanding. I would suggest once more, however, that in order to symbolize the covenant relationship, the bread of the presence in these verses should be read in light, in the light literally of the lampstand ritual. So what he's saying is this lampstand ritual embodies the people itself. The the people should see themselves as the bread in this lampstand ritual. Going down to the, the next paragraph. This other scholar he's citing affirms that the changing of the bread on the Sabbath defines its meaning in terms of the Sabbath, the create and creation theology, noting that the Sabbath itself is referred to as an eternal covenant. So Sabbath is an eternal covenant, this uh, bread of the presence, lampstand ritual, eternal covenant, and a sign between Yahweh and his people. Now, given the menorah is made of seven lamps, which are, require the evening and morning tamid, this uh, other thing that I don't have time to go into. It could be that the cosmological symbolism links this ritual with the bread tamid, focusing on the Sabbath in particular. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, even in Genesis 1, when you see God designate stars to shine upon the earth to symbolize time and seasons, which is all ritual language taken from Leviticus, by the way. 
that what this is doing is this is taking Genesis 1 and Leviticus and saying, we need to work every Sabbath in resting in God's, in the light of God's face and aligning ourselves morally with him. That's what's going on here. And to see how this gets worked out in, um, with the, the new, in the New Testament, I want to read just one, two verses, I think, from Revelation. And they will see his face. This is Revelation 22, four through five. So this is towards the end. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of a light of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. We live in the Lord's light then like we're supposed to now. The light of God shining upon us is supposed to morally transform us. Create moral purity within us and so all of these rituals and this concern for ritual purity is in a very real and tangible way supposed to be the method the medium of moral formation that we undergo and instead we've elevated it to prominence Any thoughts? No. No. That's all good. Um, yeah. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip my, my last quote from, from the book that kind of hits that home a little bit more. I think I've, I've, I've hammered the point. If you're interested and want to pick up the book, it's on page 208 and 209, where he talks about how being in Yahweh's presence is supposed to change us. Um, <clears throat> his holiness is supposed to become our holiness. Uh, but for the sake of time, I will omit that. Um, any, any thoughts before we move on to the Jewish Gospels? You can go ahead and okay. Go ahead and go. I might have some thoughts here. So okay. So let's let's kind of refocus before I transition into that. We're still this is still about Mark seven, right? And this debate that Jesus is having, and we can see already that these specific Pharisees are struggling to understand what it is that Jesus is doing in. And, and why Jesus is allowing his disciples to behave in this way. And I think what Jesus, excuse me, what Jesus is, wow, um, what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that this is what Leviticus was about from the beginning. Hmm. And so if we, if we don't understand that, it becomes really hard to understand what what it's all about. So um, I'm going to read an excerpt just to um, 
from, from the Jewish Gospels. This is chapter three. It's entitled Jesus Kept Kosher. Um, and so you can kind of see where I'm, I'm going with this. Um, this is the second page of the chapter, 103. Buenarin says, even among those who recognize that Jesus himself may very well have been a pious Jew, a special teacher to be sure, but not one instituting a consequential break with Judaism, the Gospels, and especially Mark, are taken as signs of a rupture of the rupture of Christianity, of its near total overturn of the formal of the forms of traditional piety. One of the most radical of these displacements is accordingly to nearly all views, the total rejection by Mark's Jesus of Jewish dietary practices and the kosher rules. So this passage in Mark is often cited to see to say either, hey, Jesus um, rejected Jewish dietary laws, right? Because he declared all foods clean. Or that Mark in writing Jesus inserts this, which is why it's in parentheses, right? Thus he declared all foods clean. <clears throat> and that becomes a major sticking point and a break between Judaism and Christianity. And Boinarin is saying that's not the case. Counter to most views on the matter, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus kept kosher, which is to say that he saw himself not as abrogating the Torah, but as defending it. There was a controversy with some Jewish leaders as to how best to observe the law, but none, I will argue, about whether to observe it. So what the controversy wasn't, do we observe the law or not? It was, how do we go about doing that? According to Mark and Matthew even more so, far from abandoning the laws and practices of the Torah, Jesus was a staunch defender of the Torah against what he perceived to be a threat the threat of the Pharisees. So Jesus actually saw the Pharisees, Jesus as a Jewish man, saw the Pharisees as actually potentially tearing down what the law was about in order to uphold their tradition of the elders, which is the exact tension we see in Mark, right? And, and that's what Boinarin is arguing for. Um, and so this becomes not about do we follow the law or not. This becomes about what parts of the law are important for us to behave morally before God. Are we concerned with ritual or are we concerned with, with morality? On, um, do, you, do you have a, a note to make before I move on? Okay. So on page 108 and 109, um, he says, Reading the text backwards from later Christian practice and beliefs about the written Torah and its abrogation, interpreters and scholars have found a point of origin, even a legend of origin, for, the, for their version of Christianity in this chapter. In contrast, reading the text through the lenses colored by years of immersion in Jewish religious literature of the time, and Jesus and the evangelists... Um, of the time around Jesus and the evangelists produces a view, a very different perspective on the chapter from the one that has come to be so dominant. Anchoring Jesus in his proper historical and cultural context, we find a very different text, indeed one that reveals 
an inner Jewish controversy rather than an abdication of the Torah. And so he's arguing that Jesus is not outside of the Torah, but is indeed arguing, or outside of Judaism and Torah practice, but is arguing from within it. Um, <clears throat> a little quote about how Mark knew his context. The first thing that must be acknowledged is that the readers of Mark are clearly expected to be far away from traditional Jewish practice as well as from the Aramaic and Hebrew language. The writer of Mark in anything is anything but distant from and ignorant of these matters. Skipping ahead, whenever Jesus is portrayed as, whatever Jesus is portrayed as doing in the above text for Mark, including, and thus he purified all foods, is not permitting the eating of all foods, even if we were, if we accept that every word of the passage as it is before us in the text. So even if we accept the originality of Mark, he's saying Jesus isn't arguing that Jews get to eat all foods, right? And this is, this is a distinction that I think Paul makes too. Um, <clears throat> so let me see. Any comments there? I just think that this line of argumentation is really interesting. And, um, well, let me just do this really quickly. Uh, <laughs> well, Matthew 5 again. Right after the Beatitudes. Here you go. Right there? Yeah. Start in 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We are familiar with that, but for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, we call least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, back to Willard's example that we talked about last week. What would we do if a someone got up in church and said that's what they want for their family? We just, in our household, we teach our children to keep God's law. But didn't Jesus say, you shall teach them to keep the law? And you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven if you don't. And if you don't teach them to keep the law, you'll be called, you'll be least. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So in closing, um, a few more notes from Boynarin. <clears throat> but 
it is original. Uh, so he's talking about this, this verse that usually gets omitted by scholars. He says, this verse is original and key to understanding the passage. It reads, let those who have ears, let them hear. This is a refrain that Jesus says quite often, thus signaling that Jesus' statement about the law and purity is a parable and that the law itself has a deeper meaning, which is what we were just talking about, right? It's about producing moral formation. But the disciples could not understand the deeper meaning that Jesus' words were meant to convey. Why does the Torah only render impure that which comes out and not what that which goes in. If not to teach us something, namely that morality is more important than purity rules. Jesus saying, it isn't what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out of you, isn't to say that the purity laws get done away with. It's to say that you produce the very thing that is your destruction. And so, um, let me see. Yeah, I'll just start from, um, okay, so why does the Torah only render impurity, uh, impure, that which comes out and not that which goes in, if not to teach us something, namely that morality is more important than purity rules, and especially, allegedly, Pharisaic extensions of them. This has absolutely nothing to do with abrogating Torah. It is just putting it in its place. The explanation that Jesus gives is to interpret the deeper meaning of the Torah's rules, not to set them aside. And it is this deep interpretation of the law that constitutes Jesus' great contribution, not an, allegate, uh, not an alleged rejection of the law, but a call to deepen our genuine commitment both to practicing it and to incorporating its meanings. Jesus famously says, uh, famous sayings can be seen as entirely within Jewish spiritual, within the Jewish spiritual world. And so in closing, the point that Boynarin's making, the point that we get from Leviticus, if reading it in the vein of who shall ascend the mountain, is the same point that Willard is pointing us to in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to become the kinds of people who naturally produce moral purity, not by rejecting ritual purity, but by using it as a way of instructing us, informing us into the kinds of people who naturally do the things that God calls us to. That is what it means to be a Christian.